Welcome to Vegan Business Talk with Katrina Fox, author of Vegan Ventures, Start and Grow an Ethical Business. Hello and welcome to episode 125 of Vegan Business Talk. I'm Katrina Fox, journalist, author and PR consultant and founder of Vegan Business Media, a content events and training platform providing success strategies for vegan business owners and entrepreneurs. Now, just quickly, before we jump into the main part of the show, I wanted to let you know about my online PR course and group coaching program, Vegans in the Limelight. Now, this is a 12-month online program where you have video training that teaches you everything you need to know about how to do your own PR. You can ask questions on the platform and you can also post your proposed pitches and media releases before sending them to journalists to get my feedback. You also get to jump on a monthly live group call where you can ask whatever questions you want about your business and you can get tailored help from me on anything to do with raising the profile of your brand. So it might be that I look at your website and give you some feedback or how to improve your LinkedIn profile and other marketing and PR topics. So if you'd like to find out more about that, just hop on over to veganbusinessmedia.com and you'll see a link there for Vegans in the Limelight. And now on to the main part of the show. In this episode, I interview Simon Newstead, founder of Bite Society, a new vegan food product company in Melbourne, Australia. A vegan for more than 10 years, Simon's background is in technology. He's a co-founder of Frenzoo, a mobile game studio in Hong Kong that has been in operation since 2008. In addition, he's an angel investor and supporter of other companies, including Ocean Hugger Foods, Shiok Meats, Kinds of Grace and Hungry Planet. Bite Society, a zero-profit company, was started in 2018 and launched its first products, Milky Chocolate Balls and a Chocolate Block, earlier this year. That's 2019 if you're listening in the future. Simon's goal is to lower the price of vegan goods and he hopes to inspire other founders and projects through transparency and open sharing, including the company's financials. To this end, he's charting the journey of Byte Society via his Vegan Startup podcast. In this episode, Simon discusses the key mistake many startups make and how to avoid it, the pros and cons of either you or others promoting your products as the vegan version of well-known non-vegan products, how to find a co-packer that helps you to keep costs down, how to calculate your margins and profit, and what costs to include that many vegan entrepreneurs don't do, which can result in a business failing, how to sell direct to retailers without going door-to-door in person, the low-budget marketing strategy he used to gain traction for Byte Society and how to do this right, how the zero-profit company model works, and much more. Here's the interview with Simon Newsted from Byte Society. Hello, Simon, and welcome to the show. Hi, Katrina. Thanks for having me on board. I'm very excited to go and uh, have this chat. Well, I'm very excited to speak with you because we were just talking before we uh, came on air. And I know you said very kindly that the podcast was one of the things that inspired you to start your own business. So I was very excited about that. And that leads nicely into my first question is the question that I ask everyone I love to kick off with is the why. So what are your drivers for reasons for for doing what you do? You've started Bite Society. You've got these two fabulous products, the vegan chocolate balls and a a chocolate bar. And um, yeah, we're going to talk more a little bit about the business. But tell us about your why, why you decided to do it, because you've got a background in, you know, a strong background in startups and uh, in business. So yeah, tell us about your why, first of all. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I guess maybe I can rewind a little bit and, you know, going right back, um, you know, when I was a child growing up, uh, I had an experience, which I think, um, you know, a lot of people kind of experienced, which is, you know, being the kind of subject of bullying. And this seems like a very personal way to start the story. But one thing that kind of like, you know, kind of 
drove into me was the kind of, you know, the empathy for kind of victims and people kind of, you know, the subject of injustices. And that kind of really, you know, stuck with me over the years. And it was about 10 years ago, I kind of, um, you know, finally put two and two together and realized kind of, um, you know, what we were doing to kind of the fellow inhabitants of this planet. And I became vegan myself. So, um, you know, for ethical reasons to kind of reduce this, you know, sentient suffering. And so that's um, something that kind of, you know, is in my background. And in parallel, I'd taken the career path of doing um, engineering first and then getting into, um, you know, internet. So internet networks and internet applications and then moving into more um, content and, and gaming. So for the last, um, it's actually about 12 years, um, I've been running and co-founder of a video games company. So um, that's something that kind of took me into entrepreneurship and, and the startup world. Um, you know, I, I just love to create, I love to create products and I really enjoy technology and new trends. And so I've been doing this for, uh, for some time now. And through that kind of journey, I got into thinking about um, on the vegan side, how can I go and, you know, have more impact? Um, so I'd been doing some activism work and, you know, organizing outreaches and education and movie screenings and how to go vegan 101 uh, workshops. <laughs> um, but around a couple of years ago, I started thinking, well, you know, that's good and that's a limited kind of scope. But actually, if we think about it, most impact is through animal agriculture. It's through food. That's how we kind of have the most impact. And so I started to think, well, could I go and take my kind of, you know, tech background and start to get involved with startups. You know, I love startups. I've run, you know, as part of a startup. Um, how could I go and support um, vegan food startups? And so that kind of like got me started. Um, so a couple of years ago, I started to look into um, angel investments. So putting in, you know, small amounts of money at very early stages into vegan startups. Um, and I did that. I made some investments and I kind of helped out those companies, um, both the ones I invested in as well as just ones I just volunteered to help. Um, and then it kind of led me down the path of saying, well, you know what, I've got this experience and I want to try and have more impact. Why don't I go and start something myself? Um, and that kind of was the genesis of this, um, Bite Society project, which is basically a mission driven, transparent, um, you know, a zero profit. I'm sure we'll talk about a zero profit project to go and, um, try to build a food company that's, um, really for the for the right reasons and to go and do it openly and hopefully that can kind of you know help educate and inspire other vegan founders and projects in the future that's the ultimate goal got it fantastic no i love that you've you've shared that story it's just interesting i was kind of chuckling inwardly when you said i love technology because i think a lot probably a lot of vegan business owners are the opposite it's like the challenges is that uh, the technology right. behind everything so i think that's great Absolutely. that you've um yeah you've used those skills that you've uh you've gained through your your previous businesses to um yeah not only to help startups as you've mentioned with the angel investing but also um starting up your your own company but in a completely different field so just on the we've touched on the angel investing so what are you looking for um if you're going to invest in a business particularly as an angel investor um what does that mean for you because i know angel investing can mean slightly different things it could mean giving a bit of money or it could mean offering some kind of support so what do you look for when you're considering whether to invest or support a company oh that's a great question um so the first thing i look at personally is the the possible impact. I mean, could this could this project or product really move the needle? As in, you know, is it something that could really displace, you know, uh, you know, a large amount of animal agriculture? Um, so, for example, um, I was a, a, an investor, an angel investor in a company called Ocean Hugger Foods. Oh yeah, I know um, David. David Benson. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I enjoyed the podcast interview here as well. With him. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, they, they do um, you know uh, plant based seafood, starting with ahi tuna, and then now an, an eel product uh, replacement. And that's something that you know, uh, particularly here in Asia, um, you know, seafood is consumed at you know, mammoth amounts and, and globally as well. And that has a, you know, a potentially big impact. So I, I look at things like that. Um, um, so, yeah, I, I uh, look at the, the impact. So, you know, seafood is a huge one. And I, I did a small investment into um, uh, shock meats, um, which is working on um, a cell-based crustaceans. Um, so that has a potentially huge impact. Uh, you know, typically as, as kind of vegans and, and animal activists and animal lovers, you know, we obviously gravitate towards the animals that are, you know, we see around us and that, you know, particularly land animals. But, you know, there's, there's a huge trillions of marine animals which are, um, you know, consumed every single year. 
um, I think it's 2.7 trillion um, marine animals. So, you know, some of these other areas where I think there's kind of a little bit less representation, like crustaceans, uh, yeah. I think are really important. Um, so I wanted to, you know, I supported Shock because of that. And there's some plant-based protein company in the US, um, Hungry Planet, which is um, doing oh, a yes. range of things. Um, yeah. So yeah, I, I kind of, um, I'm a small kind of early stage, um, you could almost say like friends and family level uh, investor in, in them and supporter. Okay, cool. And, um, so, so I'm looking at yeah. the, you know, the possible um, impact. Brilliant. No, I love that. And it's great. It's really exciting actually seeing some of these developments, particularly as you're saying fish and crustacean uh, replacements, which is a really quite new and exciting and obviously very necessary area. So you've seen a lot of startups, you've invested in some, what are some of the mistakes that businesses make when they're starting out? Um, I've seen, I guess a couple, and I've made a bunch myself in my own, uh, <laughs> um, I, I, you know, it's funny there, there was a, um, you know, a very detailed study a few years back, um, which is the causes of failure of startups. And it was, it was done by one of the universities in the US. And it was, you know, hundreds or thousands of startups which were profiled and not your typical kind of survivor bias looking at the positive success stories. It was looking at everyone who failed. Um, and some of the key things were, um, you know, something called premature scaling or premature kind of like growth, which is where you make a lot of investments into things when you aren't really ready yet. So it might be um, uh, you know, committing to a certain production process or, you know, investing a lot of money into, you know, expensive um, hires um, and then essentially kind of like burning through the cash before you found this product market fit. So I think in general, like that's one big thing. That yeah, that is a big People one. Kind of, yeah. yeah, kind of um, make decisions before they've kind of really validated there's a, a real product market fit. Um, I think that's a that's a key one, and and you know there's a million other reasons yeah, ways yeah. to fail. But that's a really, I think that's probably a really important one and probably quite a common one um, as well because, you know, particularly like when you raise that investment and you get really excited, it can be hard to right. get out of your entrepreneur bubble that, you know, you believe and you think this product is going to be amazing. And then, like you say, yeah, you kind of burn through all your money, um, you know, perhaps on, on the, the, I wouldn't say necessarily the wrong things, but perhaps at the, the wrong things at the wrong time, um, as you've mentioned. Right. So fantastic. And what about when businesses are pitching, for example, or when they're seeking investment? Um, what are some of the mistakes businesses make when seeking investment and what should they do instead? Well, I, I guess it really depends on the type of investors. So, you know, there's a, there's a whole range, right? For example, in vegan foods and plant-based foods, there's a range right from kind of very um, mission-driven kind of, um, you know, right from philanthropy on one side of the scale to, you know, large-scale venture capitalists and, you know, and uh, funds at the, at the high end um, when you get some of these bigger companies who are, you know, well down the line and, yeah. and they're kind of there. And, and there's different pitching and, and different investors are interested in different things. I think the key thing is to kind of know who you're pitching and know what they're interested in. Like, are they a, a kind of a short-term financial um, investor who's looking for a two-year return on investment and they want to get a you know, a, a 30%, you know, return on their investment um, within a year or two? Or are they someone who's like a long-term, um, you know, mission-aligned person like myself? I, I don't have a time frame if, you know, if there's no exit at all, but the business has had a huge impact. I mean, I class that as success to me. That's my Brilliant. exit. Brilliant. Wow. Um, right. So I think that it really depends on, on who the people is. So in my case, sometimes I, you know, the startups who I've had chats with, perhaps they're trying a little bit too hard to sell and are trying a little bit hard, too hard to pitch when actually I just want to have an open conversation. Just tell me about what you're doing. What are your challenges? You know, how can I help and have that kind of two-way discussion? Nice, nice. But nice. that wouldn't work with, you know, pitching a, a VC in, you know. Yes. A, a, of course yeah great fantastic no, that's great that's really helpful i think so all right let's look at your your current your new business um at the moment and so you've put your skills into creating bite society and as we mentioned your first products are chocolate balls and a chocolate block so tell us about what were some of your challenges when you were first starting out with this particular business and how did you handle them well that's a great question i, I guess the big meta challenge was you know i'd never done anything to do with food before myself I, I can't cook i'm not a chef i've never worked <laughs> in a too. restaurant um, that's right um and i think probably many of the audience have, have never uh, either we're consumers i'm a great consumer but i'm not a great creator yeah exactly uh, so could someone with no background um and no kind of like track record is it possible to go and start the you know a food company and 
and to do it you know uh, cheaply efficiently and also um, to be frank while keeping my day job because I still have my day job in in um, in software and and technology and gaming okay, right um, could I do it as a as a side project to kind of get a new food project off the ground um, so the, that was the big meta challenge and it seemed very daunting but I thought you know what let's let's give this a shot and let's see how the process goes um, and I guess the specific challenges, there were a couple of major ones along the way to kind of get us to launch. So we, we started the conception of this project was about one year ago when we first started with the idea and concept. And it's taken about a year to kind of like get to market. We've launched for about uh, two and a half months now. Um, so I guess the big first challenge was what product? Like what product are we going to do that we have the resources to do? Because this isn't an investor or VC funded thing. This is like kind of a relatively small bootstrapped um, budget. Uh, what could we, what was realistic? Like I couldn't do, for example, a plant-based steak, you know, too much yeah. R and D, you know, lots of food scientists, et cetera, needed too expensive. So what could I actually do? And I kind of went through a, a few different concepts um, and, and ideas before kind of settling on chocolate, which I thought was achievable. And it's also something, you know, near and dear to my heart. And I think a little bit underserved, especially talking about milky, cheap, vegan chocolate. Yeah. Um, so that was the first challenge. The second challenge, I guess, was finding a way to produce the chocolate, like developing the formulation, finding a way to produce. Um, so I, I guess we may get into it, but one of the, you know, the, the challenges was to find a co-packer, a contract packer, a manufacturer who I could uh, work with and I could trust um, um, and who would be honestly willing to take on a vegan project because a lot of co-packers, uh, you know, um, they're not really sure what this vegan thing is. And, you know, there's some selling on on my part to go and convince them to go and take on a vegan project. Really? Um, even though I am the, the customer of their services. Wow. Um, so I think they're the two um, biggest ones. Um, okay. The so so let's, let's do, as you mentioned, the co-packing, let's, let's dive into that a little bit. So, um, so how did you go about finding somebody to, or the right co-packer? Because I think it's important Absolutely. to get the right person. So talk us through that a little bit. That's what absolutely people if they're looking for a co-packer. Right, absolutely. So in my case, taking a step back, I mean, one of the, the, the key goals of this Spite Society project is to reduce the cost of, of vegan packaged goods. Um, you know, I think vegan yeah. products uh, typically tend to be really expensive compared to their, you know, animal ag um, competitors. And so that was a kind of a, a personal mission. Actually, it's the biggest kind of goal with the products of Bite Society. So from my side, when looking for a co-packer, I was looking for someone who had economies of scale, someone who was already doing a lot of production. And by definition, vegan, vegan foods are still the minority. They're growing very rapidly, but they're still the, the, you know, a, a very small minority. So I was looking for a co-packer who did non-vegan foods, but was willing to work with me to go and... Um, you know, do a vegan formulation and to do vegan manufacturing runs, uh, of course, making sure everything is kind of up to hygiene and, and quality um, uh, standards. Um, and that was important because they already have the economies of scale. Like they're the ones who are producing millions and millions of units a year. Um, whereas if I tried to go and do this from my kitchen or even a commercial kitchen, you know, I can't produce at that sort of scale and at that sort of like cost level. Mm. So that was the key thing for me. And, and, my um, that journey took me to Asia, so to looking to kind of manufacturing hubs um, in Asia to find where can I make this product very cheaply and effectively. Wow. Okay. So they're so the products are manufactured in Asia and then shipped to say Australian um, retailers. Is that right? Yes, that that's right. Oh, so interesting. Okay. The the objective is to basically do this as a global project, and we know that we want to expand to other countries. So it was to find a kind of a central hub where you know we could find a large scale, um, uh, you know, production co-packer base, um, but also could reduce shipping costs ultimately to serve, you know, large parts of the world. And you know, Asia obviously is you know it's the most population, and China, India. Um, the Southeast Asia, um, it made sense to kind of base it somewhere there to 
to reduce shipping costs and also to have that kind of uh, lower cost base. Yeah, so let's talk about the lower cost base because I, I know that's a challenge for a lot of people, a lot of vegan entrepreneurs right. is that pricing of the products because the customers get annoyed because it's like, well, why is it so expensive? But obviously what they don't realize is that animal ag is often subsidized in, in many countries right. and that's why. Um, but still, you know, you have to kind of educate the customer and I love that there are entrepreneurs such as yourself and other companies that are looking to make products financially accessible. So, and some, I know some vegan entrepreneurs who actually undercharge, um, but that can obviously be tricky because then they won't have a sustainable business. So what can right. you share about how to calculate margin and pricing? And you've touched on the Asian factories because obviously I know there's a bit of a stigma sometimes with, oh, it's being made in Asia. There's this assumption that it's, you know, in sweatshops and, you know, the workers are in right. terrible conditions. Now. So how do you, can you talk us through a little bit about that, about how you can, yeah, I suppose, get an ethical factory um, whilst, you know, not for people, animals and planet, um, whilst also, uh, yeah, keeping those, the, the prices low. So a little bit, it's kind of a double question there about the, that side of it and, and about right. how to calculate the margin and pricing. Okay, so uh, for the pricing, um, yeah, it's a delicate balance. So for example, our project, we, we want to get things as cheap as possible, but like you said, we can't make it too cheap or make a mistake or else we're going to kind of um, sell ourselves out of business. <laughs> if yes. we sell, we make a loss <laughs> and that will, that will not work out well. So what we did is we basically put together a, a really detailed spreadsheet, a model which really tracks out in, in, in pretty minute detail, like every cost involved in this project, right from the cost of goods, which is fairly easy to calculate because that's produced by the co-packer. So they handle the ingredient sourcing, the manufacture and the packaging. Um, and then I kind of worked out everything else from there. So for example, the cost of shipping a containers over to Melbourne, Australia, because we're starting in Australia and, and now we're in New Zealand and Hong Kong as well. Oh, cool. Um, you know, how much does import duties cost? How much does it cost to store in the warehouse? Um, so that before we actually launched, there was quite a lot of like preliminary work to kind of figure out all of these costs in detail. So logistics costs, travel, so forth. Um, based on that, we then put together, we basically added all of those up. And then that gave us a, uh, a wholesale price. Now included in that was the cost of paying some freelancers. So I don't get a salary out of this project, so no money goes to me coming back out of this project. Um, however, we do have some freelancers who are helping with, for example, our freelance sales um, and freelance marketing activities. So I kind of calculated all of those things and then that gave us the wholesale price. And then we kind of worked on, you know, um, retailer margins to kind of figure out where did that put us in terms of shelf price? Like in Australia, our, our target price point is around the $4 mark for 100 grams, uh, for example, for our chocolate ball product. Right. Um, and as it turned out, like we were really kind of, you know, at that price point, which is getting towards big dairies um, price point, which I'm kind of nice. uh, you know, excited about, like significantly under, I believe that, you know, we're, we're one of, if not the, the cheapest um, vegan milk chocolate um, in the market now. Um, but, you know, we're still kind of like getting close to a big dairies price. But yeah, the, the, the key thing was, the funny thing was, um, you know, there's always extra co costs that kind of come up. So <laughs> yeah. for example, like a, a great opportunity to launch at this, um, this event, but it costs you $700. Or like shipping will take, uh, you know, will cost more if I need to get it there on time and, and risk not having chocolate melted if it's going to a hotter place, for example. Ah, uh, yes, yeah. So there's always like, it's always good to kind of leave a bit of a buffer and, and we kind of have a small buffer these days, um, you know, like a, maybe a 10% buffer just to kind of cover things. But the objective is really not to, um, not to charge more than we can. And, and really kind of keep it at cost. Yeah. What I love that you've shared there, uh, shared there is about the, the pre-work that you did, like you did those calculations before you even launched and, and, and even factored in, which I think was really important. Like you said, okay, you've got a freelance sales, freelance marketing. Um, you, the fact that you factored all of that into the price of the product, I think that's really interesting and really helpful and valuable. So I just want to highlight that to ensure that people hear that because I think that's a really important one. But I think perhaps quite a few people don't necessarily think about that they kind of just think about the basics um you know in terms of the shipping etc but there's also that to factor in as well so that's fantastic now in terms of uh, your launching i believe so far you've chosen to sell direct to retailers rather than using right. a distributor so tell us a bit about why what are the pros and cons of that approach and what tips can you offer on how to sell direct to retailers yeah absolutely so 
in our case, um, you know, it, it came back to the goal of the company, which was to really radically reduce the price of, um, you know, the end customer price on the shelves that, that people buy. And, you know, the idea being that, you know, if the, they're priced the same and the taste is great, people will be willing to try a vegan version, you know, because, you know, at the end of the day, vegans are still a very small percentage of the population. Mm. Um, so back to, back to the um, route to market, um, a distributor in, in my research, you know, would be adding on quite a lot of um, their margin, you know, anywhere from, you know, 35%, 40% tends to be pretty typical. Um, and that's on and top of the retailer price then. So you've got to pay the, the distributor a percentage and you've got to pay the retailer. That's exactly right. So they would put on their, um, you know, anywhere from 30 to 50% first. Uh, and then you would go and go to the retailer and then they put their, you wow. know, anywhere from, you know, 25 <laughs> to 60%, um, depending on who it is. Um, yeah, so that was a big, big chunk. I mean, that effectively almost like, you know, can double the price of the, of the product yeah. um, it, by having that extra layer. There. Now, of course, there's, there's advantages and disadvantages. So the pros of having a distributor is, of course, you outsource all of, all of that um, logistical um, challenge. So you don't have to deal with, you know, all the shipping. And, you know, in theory, they've got a, a team of sales reps who would really represent your product well um, and, and so forth. But in reality, actually, a product like uh, chocolates is, is not that complicated. I mean, the storage is fairly simple. Um, the transport is simple and it's an established category. It just happens to be a vegan version of, mm. a, of a milky chocolate. Um, so I didn't think that there was much need for the kind of this, you know, paying the extra for the sales force because I think I could represent that and, and the kind of collective, you know, freelance team could represent that directly to the, um, to the end shops and chains. Um, and then from the logistics point of view, we actually kind of figured out a fairly efficient way to store in warehouses and to ship out to customers. Um, and so that could be done kind of fairly remotely. So, for example, let's talk practical. If I get a new order, so for example, I got a couple of new orders yesterday, uh, new customers coming on board. So it, took, it, it really only takes about 15 minutes to kind of get them up and running, um, you know, add them to the stock locator to organize the shipment to send from the warehouse, send the message. So it's relatively fast and easy to kind of take on board a new um, stockist and kind of and send to them. Is that so, because, though, Simon, is that because you've got a uh, quite a robust technological setup for, t for you to be able to do that? Because obviously there's thousands of retailers across the globe. So to have relationships with all of them, that's quite uh, yes. know, intense. So I'm assuming you've got some kind of robust technology in place and that perhaps that's, you know, your skills ah, from right. your previous job is helping you in that. Is that right? Um, I, I actually, I think you raised two important points here. So what I'm referring to going direct is in Australia. So it's in the home market of Australia right. where I'm based in Melbourne. Okay. So in Australia, we've decided to go direct because we think we can manage it. And, and to answer your question, no, it's, it's not any particular technology. It's just using kind of like off-the-shelf you know, tools. For example, a, a website that lets you go and pick the cheapest way to send a, a carton from point A to point B right. um, and a way to kind of put, you know, into the kind of store locator website system, which is relative, which is really easy. Um, so that, that's nothing um, special about that, but you're right in terms of like globally, this wouldn't scale because oh, okay. you need have local right. expertise. So we're doing a mixed model. So in, in our home market of Australia um, direct, and then we're working um, well in discussions with distributors in other countries in new zealand we have a distributor and um we're looking at distributors now in uh, hong kong and and europe and um, southeast asia at the got moment. got it got it so in terms of how to sell to retailers what tips can you offer if someone wants to decide okay i'm ready to get into retailers what tips can you offer them about how to go about that ah great great question i think from what i've learned um it's to go and put yourselves in their shoes like how what position does this product um, fit for their audience? Like, why is it attractive to the sort of people who go in there? So, for example, if I'm talking to a GoVita, like a, a health shop, um, on a large health chain in Australia, um, their consumers are going to be motivated by things that are, you know, are different from, for example, if I go into a, a vegan shop or if I go into a supermarket. So, knowing the right message to send to them, for example, like our chocolate is 25% less sugar than the equivalent dairy chocolate. So that message would go really well with yeah. the health shop. 
Yeah. Um, so, I mean, it seems obvious, but I think, you know, it's important to kind of remember that. Apart and and that, are you kind of cold calling? Because I know like with some, some, for example, with some vegan entrepreneurs I speak to, they have a track record of perhaps, you know, selling online first and they may be launching right. one particular retailer. And then when they can show that, okay, it's starting, it's selling, then they would approach different retailers. So how did you, I, I suppose I'm asking, how did you go about getting your first, like how do you go about kind of convincing that first retailer or that first batch of retailers to actually take a chance? on a brand new product and a brand new company that's got no track history. Absolutely. Well, I can share in our case, it was through that cold messaging. So I, uh-huh. I cold messaged um, the owner of, um, you know, the cruelty-free shop and who I'd actually heard on a podcast. Um, oh, yeah. I and, wonder which podcast just, that was. <laughs> I know, I Jess, wonder, Jess and I, I are friends, yeah. <laughs> that's right. And I just, I just emailed her and I said, you know, wonderful, you know, I, I really, it's very inspiring what you're doing. Hey, I've got this new idea for this business. This was before I'd launched, before I had a product even. But and can I just you pause th- you there, Simon, because Jess, I know, really supports kind of vegan brands. So she's kind of an opposite one. So what about yes. non-vegan one? Tell me about Because I think they're going to be, the vegan stores are going to be a much easier sell. Um, but what about the non-vegan right. ones? Well, it, 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 it really is um, as easy as just making a call um, to the manager and saying, hey, uh, you know, plant-based and vegan foods are growing rapidly. Um, you know, your consumers want them. We have a new uh, product that doesn't exist at the moment, a, a vegan milky chocolate that's affordable and tasty. Um, and would you be willing to go and give it a shot? Can I send over some samples? Um, oh, you know, okay. it's, it's literally as easy as that. Most of our sales, we don't actually visit in person. Like most of our stockists, we have about 50 shops now. Yeah. Um, we, we don't actually visit in person because that would be inefficient. And, yeah, it's and interesting because I, I just say, you, you know from listening to the podcast, some of the entrepreneurs that have been on the show literally do that kind of door-to-door thing. So it's interesting seeing right. all these different models. But I love, I think it's interesting what you just said there is that you, like what caught my, and I'm not a, a retailer, but I, what I would imagine would catch their attention is when you said, you know, you mentioned, that, okay, you led with the trend, plant-based and vegan foods are really popular, your customers want them. I think that's really, that was great to leave with that. But then you also said, we've got a product that's not, yet available you know affordable vegan versions of this i think that was really important i think that's important right. to, to let retailers know because they've probably got a ton of other brands you know they may have a ton of other brands they might even have other vegan brands but if you can add something else into the mix that oh, okay this is actually something that's not yet available and it's a vegan version of you know whatever it is i think that's that's really important so that's good that's really good to know that that cult sometimes you do just have to do that that cold messaging and um, obviously some of them more might say no or not yet and others will say yes you know please send them so that's that's great that's right and and, and i would say that um you know you're right that getting the first few on board is really important and then making them like great kind of references and case studies so making them a success so you'd put more effort into you know into you know onboarding i guess and you know the first handful in the different categories so your first health health shop your first independent supermarket your first you know a quick service restaurant, whatever type it is. Um, and then once you have that, to go and use that as a bit of a case study and a reference. And then, yeah. you know, people like to see success if it's been done elsewhere and, you know, um, it's less risk for them and it's successful in another shop, um, yeah. then they'll go and be much more uh, open to it. And we find that usually tends to work. The The, the rejection rate is relatively low. So, um, yeah, right. that's so far it's working. Fantastic. Well done. Now, you mentioned earlier that Byte Society is a zero profit company. Now, obviously, for the majority of our listeners, that's not going to really work for them because (laughs) they need to take a wage. They need to, you know, uh, make this their their living, whereas, you know, you're you're working in your software business and and, and doing this as an an addition. Um, But talk us um, through. But there may be some people who who think, no, actually, you know, maybe I don't need to leave my full time job. Maybe I can do, uh, you know, run a vegan business um, as a, you know, kind of side uh, yeah, side hustle, I guess, or, you know, something in addition. Um, So for those that, that are, you know, perhaps interested in that, tell us a bit about how that works and how can it be sustainable? Right. Okay. So that, that's a great question. So, you know, are we a nonprofit? Well, we're a little bit different. We're, we're set up as a company. Um, and so, yes, we, we have revenues and we have expenses. But the, the goal is every year that basically there's no money uh, paid out. So we're not going to be paying out, for example, you know, excessive salaries um, out to folks. We're not going to go and hire expensive, um, you know, management positions. You know, if at some st- stage in the future, if I can justify it, you know, if I ever join the business, it will be at a minimum wage in Australia, um, that level. Um, So, 
uh, that's kind of like the the approach. And w- what's different is we don't really have in, we don't have investors, so there's no expectation of kind of like a return uh, to investors, um, and we don't. Obviously, then we don't pay dividends either, um, right. which is a, a, another key thing. Um, so when you say zero profit, does that actually mean it's zero profit or could it be yes. actually making a profit, but you're putting the profits back into the business rather than paying yourself or paying expensive staff? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, the goal is to kind of run it as a zero profit, as in if I do a big production run. So if we order, for example, a, a 40-foot container's worth of chocolate, you know, um, five, 10 tons of chocolate. Yeah. That at the end of the day, once all of that, those chocolates have been sold out, the, the revenue from that has exactly covered the costs required to go and get it out there. Um, and that, that's basically how our model works. So for example, we started with a, a 20 foot container for the first production run. Our revenue from that should cover everything to go and sell that 20 foot container. And, and no more. That's that's kind of the model. Now, the challenge is when you need to scale up, obviously. Um, if, if this is going well, which it is, and we're now looking at kind of larger production runs, we need to be able to fund those larger production runs. Um, at the moment, that's all coming out of kind of, you know, savings, and, and that's it's a bootstrap project. So, for example, I'm looking at a, a 40-foot container run, which is a significantly more money. Um, that's coming out of, um, you know, savings, but the revenues from that are going to cover that cover that amount. So once we sell through that. And as I said, we, we put a little bit of buffer on top to go and have some extra to go and make sure that, you know, if there's a, a rainy day and something bad happens or yeah. there's some you know, additional costs. But essentially it is to go and cover itself. So I guess it's similar to an Amazon model where, you know, Amazon doesn't really, you know, for the first 10, 15 years of its life, it never made a profit. It kind of put all of its money back into the business and into expansion. But I guess the difference would be that we're putting it less into expansion and more just back into the cost of goods. Got it. Making the price as cheap as possible. Great. All right. Cool. Fantastic. Now, one thing I want to raise around your chocolate balls is they've been promoted as vegan Maltesers. And for those people, because obviously this is an international podcast, for those of you who don't know Maltesers, I don't know if they're available outside of um, the UK. I don't know if the Americans know what they are, but they're basically chocolate balls that have got like malt inside them and, and they're kind of, they're crunchy or you can suck the chocolate off, which I used to do, and then the, the malt melts in your mouth. But they're these kind of, they're these chocolate balls made out of malt and obviously you know now that we've got this vegan version of chocolate balls everyone's like oh there's now vegan Maltesers and I think this has been both a good thing in one sense it's a kind of a good angle for you to promote them because people recognize you know a known brand and you know that you're a vegan version of them but I think there's also um, can cause some issues so can you tell us a little bit about the pros and cons of either you billing or other people kind of billing or promoting your products as the vegan version of well-known non-vegan products uh, absolutely. So I guess um, this is probably the biggest mistake I've made so far in the project was that I kind of didn't push back on the, you know, the, the retail partners of ours, especially at the launch time, pushing this vegan Malteser message. Because actually, we, you know, you've described Maltesers very well. Um, <laughs> we're different. We're a milky chocolate coating. That part is, I guess, a little bit similar. However, we're using a rice crisp core. So it's, it's a kind of a neutral, very crunchy kind of texture. So it's not a melty, malty uh, core. So actually, the expectation, um, if people see vegan Maltese, is they're expecting a kind of a melty, malty experience. Yeah. And that's not what we were. And, and if I can just kind of do a quick, uh, interesting side note, this is really interesting kind of consumer psychology. We did tests with people who uh, expected a vegan Malteser. And we found out that roughly one in two liked it and one in two thought it was average. And then we took the same kind of audience of people and we gave them with no expectations and four in five people liked it. So if you just did it as a blind taste test without any expectation, you know, way more people liked it because actually I think it's a tasty product. And um, if you're not expecting um, something else. So that was the challenge is that people use that Maltese. Now, yes, you're right. On one hand, it it, it got viral and it, you know, you know, thousands of people saw those social media posts on Instagram and Facebook and lots of comments and expectation. But at the end of the day, um, you know, if one in two people don't like it, that's um, vastly reduced kind of word of mouth. And not to mention like the legal issues of, you know, using a, um, a <laughs> in there. And uh, look, I don't want to get into too many details um, because I'm probably not allowed to, but suffice to say, like, you know, 
legal representatives of Mars, you know, did get in touch with one oh, of our retailers. <laughs> okay. And so I'm kind of glad that happened in a way because then I can go and say, hey, I, I'm serious. Please don't use the Malteser branding. Now, the other factor, Katrina, is we have a long-term ambition to become a kind of a long-term brand. We want Bite Society to be kind of well-known and we want to be known for you know, not only the products we do, but what we stand for and how we're unique. Um, so kind of building out our own brand and our own messaging, I think is, you know, something that we want to do and we can't achieve that overnight and it will take a, a while, but we, we don't want to kind of just be known as, oh, that's the vegan Malteser company, which we're not. Yeah. Um, It'll be interesting. So think- it's interesting that Mars contact you. I wonder if they might bring out their own vegan Maltesers. Um, and if they did, that's not necessarily a bad thing because, as you say, you're going to create other products anyway. But um, I think that's that's an interesting one. I guess that's something to be yeah. people to be aware of. And, I, and we've seen this a lot, you know, because people are, you know, like, well, I suppose particularly vegans or also, you know, people who are dairy free or, you know, um, you know, w- wanting to try non-dairy products. You know, we do like, I would love someone, I'm just going to put it out there, I would love someone to make a vegan version of a British Twix because I used <laughs> right. to love those and I haven't right. come across anything similar so I can see why people kind of want to get excited but you're right when you put it out there or people are putting it out there saying oh these are the vegan version of whatever it is there is that expectation and it's very different from just tasting a product randomly to kind of tasting it and because you're immediately comparing it you know for me it's been 22 years since I've had a vegan Twix right you know what I mean but you know if you give me a vegan version of a Twix I'm going to know whether it you know whether it reminds me of of what I used to have so I think it's important and like you say I'm glad you raised the, the legal side of Thing, you have to be a little bit careful there as well, which is um, great. Right. Now, tell, tell us a little bit about the, um, before we wrap up, just tell us a little bit about some of the marketing strategies you've used, because you said it's a bootstrap company. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you haven't got necessarily, you know, a massive budget for, for the marketing side of things. So um, what marketing strategies have you done that were most effective and why? I believe you've worked with or you've collaborated with influencers. Like, for example, you sent me a package um, when, like I said, we, we were talking off air, I got back from my two and a half week trip to New York where I was at the plant-based food uh, conference, well, conference and expo. And I came back to my pile of mail and there was a package from you with a packet of the chocolate balls and a bar of chocolate and some badges and some or buttons, I think they're called in the US, you know, a whole nice little package. And it was a, a very nice surprise. And of course I ate them and I posted about them. So talk a little bit about, yeah, some of the, the effective marketing strategies you've had to date. Yeah, absolutely. So we, we're kind of coming into this um, with you know no advertising budget and no event sponsorship budget, um, and that was kind of clear in our in our business model. We you know we looked at how much it would cost to do an ad campaigns, and we just saw the the price increase in the chocolate that would be resulting from that. So we thought, can can we do this in a smarter uh, kind of cheaper way? And one way is exactly what you've mentioned is to go and um, to reach out to influencers and go and um, say, hey, this is who we are. This is our mission. Um, love what you're doing. Can we go and ask for your support? So we've never, ever paid an influencer, which is very uh, uncommon because, you know, most influencers are paid these days. Um, we've never paid an influencer, but we've got a lot of support from influencers because they, they kind of resonate with the product, but also, you know, who we are and what we're doing, why we're doing it. So we practically, we're contacting influencers. Um, we're sending out little uh, packs to them. So, you know, samples of chocolate and some very t- cheap uh, other items like stickers and badges, like you mentioned, um, and then seeing if they, um, you know, will support us and, and share the word. So that has been really um, helpful. A bit of logistical work to do, so um, yeah. But you know, yeah. it's but more it's cost, not, but low, reasonably low cost in terms of sending out. That's those. right. That's yeah. right. So I mean, for you know, two or three, four dollars, you know, to send a shipment of uh, samples, including the cost of goods, yeah, um, and shipping. Um, you know, you have a potential to reach, you know, thousands of people um, if they choose to go and make a post or a video or a story uh, about it. Nice. I guess that that and also just the sharing, like being open with our sharings and, and, you know, food companies don't usually share things like, you know, the mistakes they made or, you know, the the, the problems that they've gone through. It's always good news and, and good PR. Um, so we're, we're the opposite. We share the ups and the downs. And I think that naturally kind of people are interested in that. And I think that's helped us a little bit get off the ground. Yeah, absolutely. It can help with the brand loyalty because people want, I know it's a bit of a buzzword, but you know, that authenticity, you know, people like right. to say being real and being honest. And I appreciate your honesty and sharing on this, this podcast. So um, so just to wrap up then, tell us about the long-term uh, vision for both yourself um, and the brand for Byte Society. 
Absolutely. So our, I guess there's two steps in our, in our journey. Um, we, we've launched now, we're off the ground. I think, you know, we're kind of hitting just about to pass 20, our first 20,000 units um, shipped. Um, we're looking to kind of take this global now. So in the next kind of one to two years, we want to go and um, take on board distributors in, in other countries. So we're looking at EU and Asia and, um, and North America. Um, and we want to kind of take what we've made. The product is solid. The production is good. Take that and try to replicate that in, in other places because, you know, that's how we can go and have, um, you know, a bigger impact. Um, and then I'm also looking at kind of expanding, you know, if that goes well, to go and expanding the portfolio as well. So we ultimately want to have a very wide range of, you know, same thing, low cost but tasty um, vegan products. So looking at things that, you know, we can, that, that we think we can do, um, that are not too technically, um, you know, difficult, um, that would require millions in R&D, which, yeah. which we don't have. Yeah. Um, but yeah, ultimately we are looking at kind of other things. So probably starting first with expanding um, confectionery. So we're looking at, for example, we're prototyping a wafer product at the moment, which oh, is um, very exciting. Um, uh, and then beyond that, maybe other categories. So you know, for example, like you know, instant noodles might be an in- interesting one. The current ones on the market tend to have palm oil or they tend to be non-vegan or there's various issues. So that might be an example of a relatively, um, you know, um, simple next step for us, but that's yeah. you know just a just an Down idea. The track. Got it. So, and you're keen at the moment not to have investors, and obviously we're seeing a trend now with people buying out vegan brands, like larger multinational corporations buying out vegan brands. Is that something you perhaps see down the track or not? And I know it's I, difficult I, to to judge. I'm just kind of curious whether you're kind of very set on no, this is your baby, and you know you want to hang on to it with your your model. Yeah, well, the thing is, like, would they be willing to go and keep the 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 um keep the kind of ethos of the company? Like, yeah. would they be willing to be a hundred percent transparent to the point of like sharing <laughs> revenues and expenses? And I, I I find that hard to to see how someone could do that. Like, I really just couldn't imagine that. Yeah. Um. But so I, I I'm guessing in in reality the answer is no. And and personally, I, I view this as kind of a, a long term activism project. So love pretty. It. I just couldn't see a way. Yeah, no, I love that. I think it's it's great that you're almost creating a different way of doing business and hopefully others will will follow suit and particularly if people start to demand that and expect that, um, you know, that, that could be a nice, more kind of ethical way of, of doing business, which is fantastic. So look, you've shared some wonderful uh, tips uh, and advice both as an investor and as a, a business owner and a startup, Simon. So it's been fabulous uh, having you on the show. I shall personally look forward to whatever other products you um you come out with yeah remember what i said about the vegan twigs no, i'm kidding um, <laughs> you're duly noted <laughs> but no it's been great having you on the show thank you so much thanks very much katrina i really appreciate it thank you very much so that was simon newstead from bite society you can find out more at bitesociety.com and that link is on the show notes page at veganbusinessmedia.com forward slash podcasts and going to episode 125. Now for some vegan business news highlights. The Plant-Based Foods Association, PBFA, has launched with member company Upton's Naturals to file a suit in Mississippi in the US challenging the state's new labelling law which could make using meat terminology to describe plant-based foods subject to criminal penalties. The law went into effect on the 1st of July, that's 2019 if you're listening in the future, and the PBFA's lawsuit was filed the following day on the 2nd of July. The lawsuit has been brought to protect PBFA members' First Amendment rights to label their foods in a way that consumers understand and to stop the new law from being enforced. This latest suit is part of PBFA's ongoing work to defeat the meat and dairy lobby's efforts to restrict the use of common-sense terms by PBFA member companies. In addition to the new lawsuit in Mississippi and an ongoing lawsuit in Missouri, PBFA has been working in over half the states to ensure its members can continue to use terms consumers understand. So far, the association's efforts have been largely successful, with most of the state bills introduced this year either being defeated or significantly narrowed in scope. 
While Mississippi's law is the first to go into effect, other states the association is watching closely are Arkansas and Louisiana. These bills were enacted with similar language to the Mississippi law. Last year, laws were enacted in Missouri on meat labelling and in North Carolina on milk labelling. So this is obviously a worrying trend, but good to see the PBFA fighting against these labelling laws. At the recent Plant-Based World Conference and Expo in New York, I recorded a panel moderated by PBFA's Executive Director Michelle Simon and featuring several other legal professionals called Know Your Legal Rights and Responsibilities. And some of these topics they discuss on that panel. And you can watch this video on the Vegan Business Media website. And there's a link to that on the show notes page for this episode. A startup is making a vegan mozzarella cheese by creating casein identical to that found in cow's milk via microbial fermentation, reports Food Navigator. New Culture is looking to raise $2.8 million to develop the cow-free cheese that the founder, Matt Gibson, claims will deliver the taste, functionality and nutrition that plant-based cheeses can't match. Gibson, who moved his operations from New Zealand to California after taking part in the Life Sciences Accelerator Indie Bio, has filed a preliminary patent for New Culture's production process and predicts the product will be on the market within three years. New Culture joins a currently small group of companies, including Perfect Day and Geltor, that use genetically engineered microbes as mini protein factories. Wow, (laughs) it's interesting to see these high-tech developments. And if you're concerned about GMOs, Gibson said that genetically engineered microbes are currently already used in dairy cheese making, although most consumers aren't aware of this. He also stressed that although the proteins he's making are produced by a genetically engineered microbe, the microbe is not present in his animal-free casein proteins. Exciting stuff. So that's it for this episode of Vegan Business Talk. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you enjoyed the show, I'd really appreciate it if you gave it a review and rating on iTunes or any other platform you're listening on. Finally, I encourage you to head over to veganbusinessmedia.com where you can find more free resources as well as details of how we can work together to help you grow your vegan business. I'm Katrina Fox, author of Vegan Ventures, Start and Grow an Ethical Business. And I look forward to catching up with you in the next episode of Vegan Business Talk. Bye for now.